Today's guest on Washed Up Journalists is longtime television newsman John Prescott. I'm happy to be with you, by the way. I just want you to know that. You're interrupting the open. What's going Sorry, on? Sorry. No, it's okay. No, it's okay. I appreciate the impromptu nature you of it. Go ahead and read the, read the uh, rest of the open now. I will, he actually wrote this, by the way. I'm just paraphrasing what was written. It's, it's, it, we use the word great a lot. Yeah. Great, outstanding. Outstanding. Visionary. In my field. That's the other thing. Uh, I forgot. Why don't you continue? I shall continue. Prescott got his start as the editor of his college newspaper, earning the job during the same month as the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. As a student, Prescott covered an appearance by presidential candidate George Wallace, the only reporter permitted inside the venue. The following summer, he was hired by Omaha station KMTV as a summer intern, and his first assignment was to film the collection of a murder victim, a murder which remains unsolved today. In the spring of 1969, Prescott began producing the 10 p.m. Sunday newscast, earning him the nickname The Boy Wonder. Okay, you had to write that. The Boy Wonder? I, uh, it was not meant as a compliment. I, I think I'll, I'll repeat that later, but it's okay. It was it's not like, meant as a compliment. It was a lot of older reporters there uh, who didn't like the fact that a, a kid was producing a newscast and telling them how long their stories would go. You were like Robin to somebody's Batman. Right? A little bit, yeah. We don't need to go into that. All right, no. let me let me continue. From interviewing Henry Fonda to ranchers in the Nebraska Sandhills, Prescott saw it all during his 20 years in television. He eventually worked his way up to news director during what is widely considered the golden age of television news. In 1989, he left TV to work for Union Pacific Railroad, which was in the process of creating its own TV network. From 2003 to 2010, Prescott worked at the United States Strategic Command, or STRATCOM, serving three of those years as the commander's speechwriter. Since leaving the speechwriter's job, Prescott has spent time in publishing. His most noteworthy titles are The Modern Compendium of Despicable Jerks and The Oracle's Fables, the latter a series of stories told through the wisdom of legendary investor Warren Buffett. John Prescott, welcome to Washed Up Journalists. Thank you, John. I'm happy to be here. That was a fine open, was it not? It was a fine open, yes. Yes, it was. I have to give it an A. So we're recording today in what is essentially the Prescott compound in Midtown Omaha. It's your basement full of Prescott artifacts from your years in the business. It's kind of like a Shangri-La of journalism. Um, how, how many years have you been collecting all this stuff? Since I was in, uh, actually since I was at the University of Omaha. Uh, I put out the last gateway for, the, for OU and the first one for UNO. So since 1968, basically. So uh, to your time at UNO, um, as a student, how was it that you were able to, to talk yourself or talk, talk your way into covering George Wallace as a student reporter? What did you, how, how did you make that happen? Well, uh, Richard Marvel, <clears throat> who was a state senator and the speaker of the unicameral at the time, was the professor. He had met George Wallace at, at, uh, at functions that involved state legislators and governors from various states. So he knew Governor Wallace. And he asked him if he would speak to his political science class. And, and the governor agreed since he'd be in, uh, running for president for his American party. And, uh, and, but Marvel thought, well, it'd be disruptive. It would spoil the class. It would disrupt the classroom to have uh, opened it to reporters. And Wallace didn't really want reporters there either. So, um, but I went, I was the editor of the Gateway at the time, and I went to him, I said, uh, Dr. Marvel, you know, the, the student press really deserves to be there. Uh, you know, it will be totally uh, non-disruptive. I'll sit in the back, take notes, cover the event, and, uh, and it will be, should be just fine. And he, the, the student cover, student journalist covering a student event he decided that was worth pursuing. So I think he may have checked with Governor Wallace, and Governor Wallace said, sure, no problem. And so I covered his speech. Uh, what was the best part of commanding a student newspaper? What did you enjoy most about that? It was the first time I, I was really in a uh, truly decision-making uh, position where I could decide, for example, what an entire issue could be. And as you mentioned, I, I started uh, in January of 68, the, the month of the Tet Offensive, 
Vietnam was on everybody's mind. It was a big issue, for, especially for students. And I thought, here we are at a university, and there's all these professors around, PhDs. Why not tap into them and ask them to write a series of articles on how we got into, you know, what's the history? How did we get involved in Vietnam? Is it a war we can win? Is, you know, what are uh, all the ramifications? What are the costs? Um, UNOU back then, UNO the year after, it was had a huge bootstrapper program, a lot of military students too. So there was an interest uh, from a variety of, of points of view on, on the Vietnam War. So we did that, put out an eight-page issue and uh, covered the war pretty well. And uh, uh, it, for example, little tidbits like it would, you could run the University of Omaha for 300 years on, on uh, a day's, what we were spending a day in Vietnam. And I wrote an editorial, and the editorial said basically, you know, Cronkite had already come out against the war. We can't win this thing. Uh, other people, Mike Mansfield uh, of Montana, the Senate Majority Leader, he we can't win this thing. And so I, I balanced everything, and I said, this is, I have to agree with them. This is a war we can't win. At that point in time, We'd lost 28,000 American lives. By the time it was over, we lost 30,000 more, more than we'd lost at that point. It's one of those things that sticks with you as a, uh, as a human being, actually. Did you catch any flack from the bootstrappers, your fellow students? Oh, sure, sure. And that was part of the—we uh, we tried to build both points of view. You know, uh, there were some of the articles by Ph.D. Ert Gum— was a professor who wrote "Why We Can't Leave Vietnam." That was one of the articles in the in the uh, in the paper. So I tried to be, you know, full, fair, and accurate, uh, and, and cover it uh, from the. Uh, and it, it got pretty good marks. Actually, the alumni newsletter published great uh, a lot of what we put in the Gateway in their uh, summer publication. So the uh, it was it had legs. And then back to the George Wallace incident, or not incident, but the, the, the time he spoke and you covered that. That's kind of how you got discovered, and you parlayed that into an internship. Uh, talk me through how that came about. I wasn't discovered. Dave, Dave Hamer, the assistant news director at Channel uh, 3 back then, who was still a, a great friend of mine, but he was the one that gave me a start. He read the article I wrote on Wallace and said basically to Mark Gatier, the news director, hey, this kid wrote an objective story about George Wallace in a college paper. Maybe we ought to give him a look for the summer internship. And so Mark called uh, uh, Warren Frankie at the time, who was uh, uh, acting head of the school. And I ended up with the summer internship, and everything I've done since then stems from, from that job. And one of your first duties, you covered this grisly murder in Omaha. <laughs> tell everybody that story. I've heard you tell it before, but it's, I mean, I couldn't imagine that in my first weeks on the job, having it, to do that. Yeah, it was, it, the thing is, I, uh, you, as a student editor, you don't cover much mayhem. Murder is something that, generally speaking, is, is not happening, at least back then. Uh, and I got a call from Dennis Waterman, the police reporter, when I was the intern. This is that summer. And he said, uh, uh, there's a murder victim, largely decomposed at 24th and Martha. Uh, I need you to shoot film of you know, the, them collecting the poor victim. And the thing is, what stuck with me was the fact that to this day, they'd never discovered who she was. Her name was Constanzia Pestinin Chiate, a name you don't forget. And she would walk from South Omaha to St. John's Church at Creighton up 24th Street every day, and somewhere along the line, mayhem occurred. And it's it's one of those things that all these years, you realize that some stories are never going to be finished. Constanza? Constanzia Pestinin Chiati. I assume that's the usual spelling? <laughs> yes, common spelling, yeah. And, and so, I mean, did you, you know going out there to shoot that footage, did you have to hold your nose and turn away? I mean, what was that like? Well, you, you know, you, you weren't, I felt like it, of course, uh, but it was, uh, you know, you didn't, you, you don't weep in front of the women's. Uh, the police were there and I was, you know, I knew how to uh, deport myself. I had a coat and tie. We all wore coats and ties back then. And uh, so it was, it was that kind of a thing. And I said, Asked one of the uh, the guys, one of the, the beat cops, the cruiser guys. 
said, well, what kind of shape was the body in? And he replied to me, she was slit stem to stern. I said, well, that's very interesting. It probably won't go in my notes on this, but it'll, uh, it's something I probably won't ever forget. Yeah, it does stick with you. Yeah, later. it does. Any other uh, noteworthy uh, anecdotes from that internship? Did it last a year? Is that correct? It lasted just the summer, but uh, in the fall, they uh, offered me a part-time job. And by the next spring, I was already, uh, I, I was going to school full-time as a student. I was working full-time hours at KMTV. And, uh, and I was uh, ed editing the uh, UNO yearbook, the first UNO yearbook that time, too. So I was probably as busy as I ever, I ever was. And then that internship was parlayed into a full-time job after graduation, correct? Pretty much, yeah. They, after the full I got a full-time job there, and then I was producing at first weekends and then eventually the 10 o'clock news at the tender age of 23, which is where the boy wonder thing came from. It was not meant as a compliment. <laughs> uh, tell everybody what exactly the job of producing a, a television newscast entailed, at least in those days. What, what, was, what were those job duties? You were the editor of that edition. Uh, and for the 10 o'clock news, you would watch the network feeds because they had, they had a special feed from NBC. We were an NBC station at the time. And I was an NBC guy. I remember watching Huntley Brinkley from their earliest days, and that's one of the reasons I, I went for television news. But you, uh, you, you look at everything that comes over, over through the transom and uh, through the door and over the uh, electric lines, and, you, and there was lines back then. Uh, and you look at it and you say, okay, well, what's, what's news? What, what do people need to know? Well, for every newscast, you're, you're the same as in the uh, editor of a, one of the editions of, the, of a newspaper. You're the gatekeeper. You decide which stories are going to air, how long they'll be on, and, and how you treat them. A, report, uh, a reporter uh, uh, may do a stand-up. You may use it as a voiceover for the anchor. And back then, we were black and white film, too. So we, it, the film processor ran pretty quickly. I believe you've told me before, if I'm correct, you covered the Apollo 8 astronauts. Is that right? That's right. That's that was interesting. I started 1968 editing The Gateway. I ended 1968 editing Genesis. Uh, Apollo 8 was circling the moon on Christmas Eve, and Angus Campbell, a great guy, was a 10 o'clock producer then. And he uh, said, Prescott, go go pull me a, a segment of uh, the uh, from what the astronauts are saying. And so I, I looked at it, and I... I just I can't remember which part I used, but I, I used uh, a, a fairly large chunk of the astronauts reading from Genesis and lunar orbit, which is pretty impressive. I thought, to me, that was the recreation of Jules Verne's flight. I was more excited as Apollo th uh, 8 circled the moon. I was more excited than I was when Neil Armstrong landed uh, 50 years ago this month. Um, so you were you were at KMTV for a decade, basically, correct? Eleven years. And then you went out state, out state Nebraska, to take a job as, in Hastings, correct? Right. There was a, a Channel Three had uh, uh, been going down in the ratings a bit. Uh, the owners at that time did not want to invest in all the electronic journalism equipment, the live trucks, and all that that Channel Six was investing in, and it hurt them. Uh, so they fired Mark Gatier. He's the guy who gave Brokaw's first job, anchor job. And uh, he, he came back after they fired him. This is the summer of uh, 1979. And he said, John, they fired me. And I said, Mark, I don't think I'll be here very much longer. Interestingly enough, Mark got, got, has a, had a friend, uh, Jack Hughes, uh, not Jack Hughes, Bill Hughes, who was the sales manager at KHAS-TV in Hastings. And they were looking for a news director, and they hired Mark as a consultant. And Mark said, I know a guy who might be interested in the job. So Mark actually, again, the KMTV connection is still paying dividends all through my life. Uh, and they hired me as news director in Hastings, and I was there for a year. So you went from the state's major city to a more rural area. I mean, it wasn't desolate, but it was a much smaller <laughs> town. Tell me what appealed to you the most about that environment and covering news in that environment? Again, you could. Uh, I was uh, uh, assigned to improve the ratings any way I could, which was fun. Uh, the uh, uh, 
Channel 5 in Hastings was officially the NBC station for Lincoln back in those days. And it never came close to getting into Lincoln. So we concentrated on what they called Metro 2, which was Hastings, Kearney, and Grand Island. And uh, so I, I, I was also doing, there was nobody else, I did news promotions. So we had a pretty good staff, and we were, were covering the news pretty well, uh, but not patting ourselves on the back. So uh, I uh, remembered a channel, a channel 3, they had a slide called the news station, and they put it up all the time. So out in Hastings, we put up a sign that said, Channel 5, the news station. That was just a simple change. But uh, we had a budget for, for print ads. So I decided to put a full-page ad. And the background for this is that when I was leaving Omaha, they were getting into what they called the helicopter wars. Channel 3 bought a helicopter. Channel 6 brilliantly put an old helicopter, an old Hughes 300 that everybody rented. Uh, they put a sign on it said Action Air Cam. And everybody thought 6 had the first camera, despite the fact they were doing the same thing they'd always done, which was brilliant. And I uh, just, and with all the coverage of the news helicopters, I thought, well, wouldn't it be fun to put my anchors, my news sports and weather anchors? We did it on an old Minneapolis Moline tractor, and we said tractor cam. Um, it had a big sign on it that said tractor cam, and uh, the, but the copy said uh, something to the effect of anybody can buy equipment. What counts is the, the kind of reporters you put on the air and, and their trustworthiness and, and all of that. So uh, we, we did um, ran it in the, uh, a full-page ad in the Hastings and the Kearney and the Grand Island papers, and it got a lot of coverage. All of a sudden it was, uh, uh, in fact, a friend of mine, uh, Leslie LaRoche, she was the, a reporter for Associated Press. I met her years before at a bank robbery in Arlington, Nebraska. So it's that camaraderie of press people, I guess. Well, what a great place to meet somebody. It is, robbery. yeah, it's exactly. A Sunday church service. It was, yeah, exactly. So uh, Leslie called me and said, "I'd like to do a story for on the on the tractor cam thing. Where'd you come up with it and all that?" So she did a story on Associated Press. It ran nationwide. So all of a sudden, I'm getting calls. For about two weeks, I was on the phone in the mornings with DJs across the country asking about Tractor Cam. And, uh, and a lot of newspapers, too. A lot, a lot of them sent me clippings, which I, some of which I still have. The man who pioneered it was Tractor Cam. The man who pioneered Tractor Cam. It was my, it was my 15 minutes of fame, at least in, in those days. So it was, it was kind of fun. And I gather that you enjoyed covering stories about uh, crops and soil and tractors and I mean that was kind of up your alley you really took it to heart and enjoyed it ever since I was a kid my dad was a cattle rancher in Montana in the 30s and 40s and then we'd go up there and visit uh, relatives and I've always loved being around agriculture I am not a farmer uh, you have to be a lot smarter than I am to be a farmer but I knew I knew that I was interested in it and I knew the right questions to ask and that always helped so we we uh, I did a lot of farm stories out there and met a lot of really, really great people, including the Lutes. Um, the, the Lutes, had, Bob Lute and his uh, parents had a ranch, big ranch in Arthur County. And I, I was able to wrangle because between 79 and 1980, 1980, in that year, I worked at Channel 3. I was a, a news director at Channel 5 for about a year, and then I was hired to be the executive producer at Channel 6. So I actually covered the roundup, the spring roundup at the Loot Ranch, three years in a row for different stations. Dave Hamer and I did it in, uh, in the 79, and I did it with my chief photographer at Channel 5 in 1980, and in 1981, Dave Hamer had moved to Channel 6, and Dave and I went out to... Uh, to uh, Arthur and covered it again. So it was really a boondoggle. I have to admit to that, but I really love being out there. The Sand Hills is a gorgeous place, a so, treasure. So within a year, you're, you're back to the cities, to, to the state's main city, Omaha, and then you, so you really didn't miss out on that, that uh, era of, that golden era of TV news where stations had uh, helicopters and I mean describe what that competition was like between stations in those days because I think for a lot of people my age 
maybe our only frame of reference is the movie Anchorman. With, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, describe exactly what that was like in terms of, uh, you know, competing for stories and competing for resources. In this what, two of my, first of all, first two of my best friends were the producers at, when I was at Channel 3, they were the 10 o'clock producers at Channel 6 and at Channel 7. And we would gather after the newscast at a place called the Embassy Club at 40th and Farnham and drink a beer and and talk about the way we had covered the news that day. It was really, it was the press club. That's why the press club, Omaha Press Club today has a round bar because the embassy had a round bar. Um, but we would, uh, the, the live stuff, uh, Chronicle Broadcasting had purchased Channel 6 and they were dumping a lot of money into it, far more than... Uh, the Kiwit folks were dumping into seven, or the May folks were dumping into Channel Three, and there were there were ratings to be had for that. But there was one night when I was at Channel Three when the Hamilton Hotel was on fire, and I wheeled the we wheeled a studio camera out on the Farnham Street, and you could barely see the flames coming out the, but we put live. And, of course, we had no live equipment. We had a live studio camera on it because it was fairly close. And Wally Dean called me up while I was on the air and said, take that live thing off. You can't be live there. And I told him I, I, what I'd done, and he said, okay, I'm buying the beer tonight. <laughs> but that, that was probably up there in one of your great moments. It's funny how that old saying, necessity is the mother of all invention, you know, you saw a story, you were able to cover it, you had to kind of bend the rules a little bit, but you made it work. Oh, there was there was a lot of that, and there was a lot of camaraderie out in the field too. If uh, if we had what they called sun guns, which is a, a battery powered light, you'd go out and shoot film uh, at night for accidents or whatever was going on, and you'd uh, and routinely somebody's would burn out, but the ones that were still working, the they would share the light with with their compadres from the other stations. It was competition. But we, it was not cutthroat competition. You know, we wouldn't tell them that there was something going on there. But if they show up too and their equipment didn't work, we were able. To, we were usually amenable to making uh, to helping each other. How was the camaraderie between the print people and the TV people? Did you guys get along as well with the print folks? It was on a case by case basis. The World Herald didn't much like television in those days. One, of, but but it's interesting because. One of my favorite uh, print ads was in Time Magazine after the lunar landing, after the Apollo 11 lunar landing. And it, the picture uh, is of the New York Times newsroom where a bunch of uh, reporters are watching a small television set. And the print copies uh, with that ad in Time Magazine said, Harrison, or the uh, the staff of the New York Times will bring you full coverage of the moon landing as soon as it comes over the little box on Harrison Salisbury's desk, and that always struck me because that was one of the reasons I got into television instead of newspapers, um, because I did love print. I was uh, very happy at the Gateway. I had uh, was at the World Herald Junior Achievement Company when I was in high school. Um, Howard Silber always was a little ticked at me, but I, I didn't go into newspapering instead of uh, television. But I was also kind of a filmmaker. I was a, the kind of guy that would take the dad's 8-millimeter uh, Kodak and go out and make movies when I was a, a young kid. And I think part of the draw for television news was they are little movies. They are little video stories with a beginning, a middle, and an, and an end. And that always appealed to me. Uh, let's let's touch on that some more because you've told me stories in the past. You had you had the opportunity to cover, uh, for news purposes, various events in the film industry, um, premieres and that sort of oh, thing. Oh, Channel Six was the. Uh, well, I did get the uh, interview as you mentioned. I, I interviewed Henry Fonda, and that was a one-on-one -on -one with Henry Fonda uh, at on the stage of the Emory of the Center Theater, which became the Emmy Gifford Theater. Emmy Gifford was Henry's uh, sister, and he. He uh, helped make that that uh, dream come true for her, and we we were talking, and then we talked about his the many times he's played a president, and I mentioned Failsafe, the movie Failsafe, where it's Henry Fonda and Larry Hagman and a lot of back and forth, um, and it's one of my favorite movies. And uh, Henry said, "You know, I don't even remember that one." <laughs> so it's amazing how those things can affect people. 
But the, but the other thing you're talking about, I'm sure, is the the trip to Hollywood. I was a I was a Star Trek fan. There was no two ways about it. Not so much you're going to ever catch me in uniform under the opening credits dancing in the aisle. Not that big, but I was a fan of the show. Still am. And um, the entertainment reporter always uh, went out for for uh, junkets uh, to interview the stars of these shows, and the studios paid for it. And our news director at Channel 6 said, why don't you take the extra seat on this one and just find out what goes on there? You know, is it worth our time to send somebody? Should we be paying for the uh, tickets? Uh, you know, which, of course, the easy answer is yes, we should always do that. But um, So we we, uh, we went out, and I uh, he all, the, all of the... Uh, other entertainment reporters, we were talking, they all had a lot of respect for the guy that worked for Channel 6. So there was nothing really uh, nefarious to report. It was, it was just kind of a, a standard thing. But as part of it, I got to, I got to interview uh, uh, DeForest Kelly, the guy who played uh, Dr. McCoy on Star Trek. Uh, and that was, that was fun for me. Uh, I got to sit in on interviews with uh, William Shatner and, and, and Leonard Nimoy, and that was fun. But what, what's interesting to me is the way they, they did this premiere. They had a, uh, a press premiere, and the press premiere is in a screening room that looks like the Orpheum Theater. It's a gigantic theater, and everybody who worked on the film, they bring their families to watch this thing. And it's a press premiere, too, so we had front row seats for the show. And this was uh, the, the one about the whales, Star Trek IV, I think, the fourth movie. And we, we, uh, when they have the closing credits, you can hear smatterings of applause. You know, when the best boy comes up and the best boy's family is sitting off to the left and you hear them applauding. And so it was, it was, an, it was interesting to see how movies... Are, are rolled out like that, and how um, they include the guys who are the electricians and the camera folks and the maintenance people, the craft people. Um, that was fun. And, and afterwards, they had a snack at the commissary. The snack at the commissary was was a meal you wouldn't believe. I mean, it were sliced uh, uh, prime rib, and it was just it was uh, great. So it was it was fun as a fan. So that was probably my boondoggle at Channel 6. Going to hit the brakes here momentarily to tell you that today's episode of the Washed Up Journalist podcast is brought to you by Legacy Preservation. So picture this. You have a basement, and on the walls you have photos and artifacts and all these things from different points of your life. Certainly a a life well lived. Every award means something. Every recognition you have is special to you and your family. And every once-in-a-lifetime photo is captured in that basement hanging on a wall somewhere. If this is you, your name might be, well, I'm just going to say it, your, your name might be John Prescott. But seriously, we all go through our lives accumulating those things, and behind all those things is a story. And if you piece all those stories together, you have the story of your life. Well, at Legacy Preservation, we help you capture that story and publish it in book form. Legacy handles all aspects of publishing, giving you time to reflect on your life and tell the stories that should go in the book. Legacy Preservation, we write history, yours. Special thanks to John and Lee Prescott for hosting me today. Also, thanks to Kevin McLeod for providing today's soundtrack. And now, back to my conversation with John Prescott. Beyond uh, interviewing Henry Fonda and the whole Star Trek gang, did you ever have any other noteworthy brushes with celebrity? I did, actually. Uh, one of the, Back in the uh, early 70s, our sports director... Uh, back then, Dave Blackwell, who was a wonderful guy, just as funny as can be, was good friends with Gordon McRae, who had moved to Lincoln. He married a, a local girl, and uh, they were living in Lincoln. And Gordon McRae would come up, and he would sit in the sports office and wait for Dave to get off the air at night. And remind, for anybody my age or thereabouts, who the hell is Gordon McRae? I know, but a lot of people might not. Yeah, well, that's true. Gordon McRae was uh, a, a film actor and singer, who uh, was best known, I think, for he did a lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein uh, movies, <clears throat> including Oklahoma. And his opening to Oklahoma, as he sings, uh, was was is the heart and soul of this story. Uh, so, film stars. The uh, anyway, the uh, we after the news, Dave and uh, Gordon were going to go up for uh, for a drink at a local bar down the street, down at Thirtieth and Farnham. 
And uh, they decided to invite uh, John Clark, who was the night reporter, and Danny Livingston, the film editor, and me to join them. So we all walked down Farnham Street. It was a summer night. It was a full moon. It was just gorgeous. And we had uh, many beverages there, uh, you know, uh, all of them, I'm sure, soft. Um, and on the way back up the hill, it's about 1 o'clock in the morning, bars are closed, and we're walking up uh, Farnham Street across the interstate. And... Uh, and all of a sudden, I start singing because I was in high school uh, in production, musical productions in the acapella choir at Central. I start singing, there's a bright golden haze on the meadow, just like Gordon McRae did Oklahoma. And all of a sudden, Gordon McRae and Dave Blackwell are joining in and John and Danny. And all of a sudden, we're all singing, oh, what a beautiful morning with this one o'clock in the morning, a full moon, a warm summer night. It uh, was a great memory. That's about as good as it gets right there, I would imagine. Well, it, was, it was fun. Over your years in, in TV news, you know, you mentioned before you started out on black and white 16 millimeter. How did, you know, what changes took place on, in terms of what you shot on and what you shot it with and how it was edited over the years? The, uh, I went from black and white film in 1969 to or 68 to color film in, in 1969, and that that more than doubled the cost of, of shooting film. We used to shoot, we figured one in one foot for every ten feet for every one foot that got used, and it was uh, uh, we were told to cut that down. We really didn't, uh, but that lasted until about 19 for Omaha until about 1976 when we had videotape and then live microwave trucks and then we had uh, the satellite truck at Channel 6 and we were doing stuff live from anywhere. Uh, it was the, the blessing and the malediction because with the live stuff, you're no longer, you're, you're, you're reducing and in some cases eliminating the editing function, which I always thought was important in news. Cover the story, bring it back, write it, let somebody look at it and see if you got mistakes, which happened a lot. And now it's just live. It goes bouncing off Jupiter, and uh, and who knows what happens to it. For decisions as to making changes in equipment, did that come from the suits above, or did you ever get involved in decision-making about purchasing a new camera or, you know, uh, what sort of audio equipment we need to do our job properly? Or How involved were you in those decisions, or did you just take orders from above? The, actually, that was not even where my area of interest was. I was never a techie. Uh, I used the tools they gave me. and But they would always ask the, the photographers, the really crackerjack photographers, and KMTV and Channel 6 had really wonderful photographers. I mean, they made history. They were so good. Um, they were uh, people like Hamer. He was the chief photographer. They would ask them about camera equipment. What should we be getting? How should we use it? Uh, there was the technical equipment, the film processors and all that. I didn't really have to, in the news gathering uh, piece of it, uh, news gathering, editing, production, that was, uh, it was less important except that if it would speed up the process for us, that helped me. Um, you could put on, you know, a, a newscast a lot faster. You could put news on a lot faster. Uh, so in, in 19... 89, I believe, you got out of the TV news racket and went to work for the railroad, Union Pacific, correct? I did. The business was already changing uh, a lot, and I had a friend of mine, Jeff Jordan, who was an, uh, the anchorman I wrote for. I wrote the great anchorman, Tom Henry, Chuck Roberts, uh, who went on the big CNN career. Uh, he's still a good friend of mine. Uh, and Jeff Jordan, who was also a good friend of mine, he ended up uh, going to work for the railroad when he left. And he, we were writing for the Press Club show uh, one year, and he said, well, it was 1988, uh, and we were writing for it, and he said, it's too bad you're so happy at Channel 6, because uh, there's a great job coming up at the railroad, you'd be perfect for it. So I said, stop, back up a sentence, <laughs> and the long and sh the short of it is, I ended up at, uh, at Union Pacific Railroad in their communication, employee communications department, which was probably the most fun I ever had working anywhere. What, what made it so fun? Uh, the, the, we, we really got to go out and cover, you know, it's industrial journalism, which you can, can, you can argue whether how much journalist, how many journalistic ethics are being somewhat violated. 
because we're writing with a point of view. But we covered a lot of really fascinating stuff. I was uh, uh, able to travel a lot. I went basically coast to coast and border to border for railroad stories. Uh, so you got to go places, see things, uh, which is frankly what I kind of missed in the early part of my career because I was inside as a, as a producer. And I really enjoyed being out and covering uh, things, first for print and then doing video projects. I became uh, the manager of video services, and, and we did a lot of films that were we were able to employ top-notch production people from this. Omaha is, is a wealth of those, those kinds of folks. Um, and it was just, it was, it was, a, it was a, a writer's dream. I mean, my whole career is telling stories with words and pictures. Never was I given the resources uh, that I was given at, at Union Pacific. It sounds like in some ways you had resources there that a lot of folks in Hollywood would have been jealous of because you had not only resources, but essentially opportunity and kind of a free reign. I mean, here, here's what we want. Go get it, basically, right? It was an industrial. If, 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 if anybody out uh, listening to us out in podcast land gets a chance to watch Bathtubs Over Broadway, it's about industrial musicals. Uh, Steve Young, who was David Letterman's top uh, comedy writer, uh, put it together. Uh, I think Letterman was actually a producer on it. But it's about the amount of money corporations have spent on these kinds of productions. They were actual musicals, a lot of them. And they cost a lot of money and put a lot of people to work. Uh, there, are, there were actors and actresses that would only act in those uh, those productions. There were film companies production companies and writers who spent their whole careers just doing those kinds of events. And it's a fascinating documentary and well worth worth uh, a watch. But we did that on a smaller scale at Union Pacific, but we did things for the corporate meetings too. And some of them were were fairly, you know, there were, it was just, we had the run of the railroad. What was your, uh, call it your most hard-hitting or serious story journalism wise that you covered when you were working for the railroad it was it was probably the well there, there was two the the olympic train i got to be the uh the pr spokesman on the the olympic train in 1996 my my leg of the sh uh, the show was from minneapolis to uh chicago through milwaukee and uh, so I got to be on the train with the Olympic torch. They built a special car. They built the sound stuff. They had all the classic passenger equipment, the dome cars and all of that. And they, were, they put it together. And they, because of that, it, it traveled back and forth over probably 10,000 miles of the, of the western two-thirds of the country. And they would pull in to a town or a city, and they would uh, light a torch, a hand-carried torch, off the big cauldron that was on the car. The cauldron would go out, and they would run that torch from person to person all over the city, and then back to the car, they would light the big cauldron again. It was dramatic, and they had a sound system. They were playing the Olympic music. Uh, there were speakers at each town, and it was just a great experience. It was a it was a really good effort on the part of the Coca Cola people and the railroad and and the Atlantic uh, the Olympic people from Atlanta, Georgia. The Georgia State Patrol had the uh, the the flame. They were the guardians of the flame. So they were there were Georgia State Police driving par parallel to the tracks during a lot of this uh, trip, and. They would, uh, if the flame went out, and it did, the cauldron went out, the runners would, would, the torch would go out. They had daughter flames. They had a whole bunch of lanterns on that, on the train, and they were all lit from the flame of Mount Olympus when they lighted it from the sun every Olympics. And so they could relight it from the original flame, no matter what had gone out. They were very protective of that. I mean, it's, it's little things like that that who knew? Uh, and it was just a, a wonderful experience. The other one was uh, uh, that was on what they call uh, peer support, and that's when a you can't stop a train. It's like a it's like a uh, a semi running over a, a empty can of coke. Uh, the laws of physics are in play, and so an engineer and a train crew in the cab 
they're you know they they can jam on the brakes immediately. It still takes them a mile to stop. So they watch. Uh, in the worst circumstances, they watch the, their train kill somebody. And there was a peer support thing they started up, where the railroad did, where these people could talk to each other. And I got to sit in on on one one of those sessions, and it was pretty powerful. I, I uh, and I wrote a story at one one of the. I got a couple of silver quills from IABC, and they're they're very nice. It's a five state four five state uh, regional award, but still recognition for doing a good job on what I thought was an important story. So then you you got hired by U.S. Strategic Command, which is interesting because you uh, you know you kind of started your career off. In journalism, by uh, editorializing against the war in Vietnam, and then you went to work for the man. You know, thirty <laughs> years later, how did that come about, and what was so great about that job? It was interesting. One of one of the things I learned, first of all, and this, and this is important. I think it's an, it's a lost art in some cases for journalists today. Uh, one of the things I learned at, at the University of Omaha, UNO when I was in their journalism department, was in editorial writing, if you can't argue an issue from the other side, from the side with which you most strenuously disagree, if you can't do that, you have no business, you don't really understand this, the, the, the question and you, you really don't have any uh, business writing the editorial. And this was something like that because I didn't, like the war in Iraq any more than I liked the war in Vietnam. I thought it was a war that was gone nowhere, and I would suggest that perhaps that's been the case uh, in the last uh, 20 years. But at any rate, uh, I've always had respect for the military. My, I had uncles that served. I had friends that served, especially at UNO. And um, so I always had a great respect for the military, and that was not reduced by my going to work for STRATCOM. What happened was the railroad was changing, and uh, and I thought, I was looking around. My wife was working, and she said, if you want to try something else, go ahead. So I did, and I uh, a friend of mine at Union Pacific, Jack Martin, one of the Martin boys from AP in Texas, he was working there, and he had, was retiring, and he uh, got a call from his son, who was in the Navy at STRATCOM. He said, Dad, there's this great job coming up. They're going to hire for the first time a civilian speechwriter. Do you want it? And I, he said, no, I don't, but I know somebody who might. So I got a call from the from a company, uh, the uh, MCI. I'm not MCI. What is the thing? I'm actually wearing a shirt from that MTC? company. I wear 20-year-old logo shirts. MTC. A, MTC. Fits, fits like a charm, by the yeah, way. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, and MTC was, they had the contract for the speechwriter's job. And I went to, to talk to them. I brought some speeches I'd written for UP executives and some other stuff that I'd written. And the guy said, okay, uh, you busy right now? And I said, no. He said, well, we're going to go down to the Bellevue police station and have you fingerprinted. Okay. Because they were starting the process. He basically told me then and there I had the job with the, per, with as long as the contract went through and Everything was set the way it should have, should have been, and the, the folks down at Stratcom were happy. And as long as you survived the vetting, I mean— you Exactly, had... yeah, because they, they go through a, an incredible—that uh, took—I was there without that clearance for a while. I had a temporary clearance, but eventually I got a TS, a, a top secret, uh, CS, com, secret compartment inter—secret uh, SCI, secret compartmented information— so it was a top secret SCI, TSSCI. Uh, see, I don't even know the acronym. I sat in my first meeting at Stratcom in the commander's staff group, and there were 18 acronyms that they used. And three of them, six of them meant more than one thing. Three of them meant more than two things. You know, well, we're going to look at the uh, whatever it is, and they'd give a bunch of letters, and you'd say, okay, I'd write them down. And then afterwards, luckily, uh, there was a, a very a, a great Navy commander who was the XO in the commander's staff group, and he nursemaided me through that, along with a guy named Bob Dahlia, who's an old first shirt for, for, for in the Air Force. Uh, those two guys really helped me, and I was able to learn the jargon and, and write for, for these guys. And every one of them was top-notch, great person. I couldn't work for, for nicer folks. And I told the stories that they wanted told because that was the job. And it was fun. 
It was actually enjoyable. Fun is probably not the word when we are you're at war, but it was extremely rewarding work to help these guys say what they wanted to say in a way that would be understood by a civilian audience, which was most of the most of the uh, speeches. Compared to TV news or a corporation like UP, um, what sort of deadlines were you on? Was it less stressful or more stressful than those other jobs? It was, for the most part, less stress less stressful. Uh, you had more time to deal with things. The other thing was when you're writing for the commander of STRATCOM, when you call somebody and, and ask for information, it's on your desk almost before you can hang it up. Later, I worked for a different group within STRATCOM. I spent the last six years there working for the um, what they called the Global Innovation and Strategy Center as a, a senior media advisor. And uh, when I would call and ask some of the very same people, you know, we could use some help with this. It'd be a day or two, and I, they might get back to me. <laughs> but there's something about calling in the name of the commander that, you know, little pieces of, of you uh, come to attention. Yeah, so it, it was it was I had, it was a world I had I had not uh, envisioned ever working for. It was a surprise and a pleasant one. I, I can't think of ending my full-time work career at a, at a better place than where I worked. And then, so what have you been doing since you left there in 2010? Well, I'm working for you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> we, we collaborate. We dabble in some, some writing projects. But t tell everybody about your, uh, you know, the two books that I mentioned at the outset. Oh, I think it's, it's kind of neat. These are the books I didn't write for you, sir. Uh, it's, uh, Sorry to call me, sir. Thank you very much. It's, uh, we... Uh, uh, Tom Kerr, who's a great art artist, this is the guy who was the editorial cartoonist for the Melbourne Sun, came here, he worked for the World Herald, married a local girl. Um, and he is my partner in these in these issues. We uh, did a book in 2014 called Despicable, The Modern Compendium of Despicable Jerks, which I think is still available, available on Amazon. And it sold okay. We have a website we do mostly for our personal catharsis anymore, but we the website is free, so why would you buy the book? So where we make our money, after we did that book, we sat around and we thought, well, what do we do for a project? We went to dinner with our wives, and I asked Tom, I said, what do you suppose Warren Buffett would tell an eight-year-old? How would he convince him that it's important to make good decisions early? And we thought, that's a good idea. And Tom uh, had recently done some research on Aesop's fables. He said, what if we did modern fables, new fables, new stories, and used a Warren Buffett quote for the, um, for the, <clears throat> for the lesson of the fable? And so uh, Tom uh, had done some work for, for Mr. Buffett on uh, a couple of things. And he, he went to his secretary. He said, would you put a note in front of him and ask him if he'd mind if we did a book like this, and the message came back that said, well, show me a couple. So we did the first five fables. I did uh, wrote them, and, and uh, Tom did the artwork. And we sent it to him, and he said, well, this looks really good. Why don't you uh, go ahead and finish the book, and you can sell it at the meeting next spring. And not being total idiots, we said, yeah, we could do that. <laughs> and we did. And it has been the top, it's sold every year for five years. We think it was a top seller all five years at the bookstore, the top selling title. But we know for sure Phil Black at the uh, Bookworm, which runs the bookstore in the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, he says it's been the top seller for sure for the last four years. And you've sold it worldwide, right? I mean, it's like in 30 countries? or you've It's got... in 27 countries, but that's, uh, we don't have, you know, book stands in those 27 countries. It's... The people who come here for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting, and, and some who, who have found out about it by word of mouth, have asked for to be mailed to them. But we know that families in twenty at least 27 countries have copies of our book. That's kind of a, a, a pleasant thought, that somehow we're making a mark. And the idea is simple. It's never too early for kids to start making good decisions because it'll affect the rest of your life. And there's a lot of kids that don't have the opportunity to get that message. That's great. That's a neat project, and it sounds like a great collaboration with with Tom Kerr. He sounds like a joy to work with. Oh, he's a he's a prince. We do all kinds of little sidebar issues, and uh, but it, it, we have the most fun right now doing the uh, Despicable Jerks, which of course nobody reads. But it's it's kind of like society has taken that away from us. It's uh, it's. Every day you, you, you read all about that kind of stuff. And, and what we're doing is, uh, it was new in 2014, but uh, somewhat new. But uh, not 
not as uh, as rough as a, and tumble as it is these days. So I'll, I'll ask you one more before I get you out of here. Um, what do you, you know, what's your take on the state of the news business today, specifically TV news, because you're the first TV guy I've had on the podcast. Where do you feel like TV news is at in terms of uh, consumer confidence, reliability, and where does it need to go to improve in the next decade or so? Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, t- uh, newspapers are doing more television now. They just are. It's stuff on the it's stuff on the web. It's video. It's it's live interviews. It's, they're covering sports live. Um, so I I see a, there's a homogenization going on. And what is I hope happens is that people will go to trusted sources, not just sources they agree with, but sources that are trusted. I would suggest that the best television sources are the three major networks and CNN. Those are the, those, and I have a vested interest in CNN. My daughter works there, following in her old man's footsteps, you might say, she, in a way. She paid attention after all those years. She heard a few things. Who so. knew? Uh, but she's a, a, just a, a, she works hard, a lot harder than I ever did and is, is doing, a, doing a great job. But uh, to get back to it is, the, if you go to a trusted source, you may not agree with it, but you're going to get a perspective. Should you watch MSNBC and Fox? Sure, you know, but, but remember that, uh, especially in their, in their commentators, they're coming at it from a point of view. Uh, and I'm not sure if, if any of them on either side can write an editorial that from the other side the side with which they most strenuously disagree. Not sure about that. It feels like we're so polarized these days that's getting harder and harder to imagine because yeah. it feels like the opposing viewpoints are getting farther and farther apart from each other. Yeah, and I do, I do, uh, I do, I'm, I'm mourning for the state of newspapers in this country because I, I love newspapers. I was I started as a newspaper editor. Um so it's uh, it's it's just the kind of thing that you you hate to see happen. I'm not sure where it's going to go. I think anybody who says they do is nuts. But it's uh, but I'm I'm hoping that there's some kind of a, a gathering uh, of trusted sources who can somehow get their their the co- the coverage their stories out to more as many people as possible, which is always the goal. Uh, because telling stories with words and pictures is fun and it's rewarding and doing it right, doing it, trying to be objective is always, in my world, the goal. It's not always the goal for everybody. That was well said. Well, John, this has been really good. I appreciate your time. This is the first on-site pod that we've done. We're live from the Prescott Family Compound, Shangri-La, which (laughs) does not require security clearance to get in. I did not have to get vetted. I just had to ring the doorbell. But uh, you've been a gracious host, and I appreciate it. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it.